Hello, and welcome back to Blitzscalable Venture Deals. This time, we're going to be looking at Blitzscalable Venture Deals from the month of May 2023. I am Chris Yeh, joined by my partner, Scott Johnson, from Blitzscaling Ventures. Scott, how did the month of May end up looking? You know, we had more deals than April. April was a really bad month for deal volume, down to 47 total. So below 50 is kind of anemic and may was up at 62 so still not 100 but 62 is a solid number pretty much the usual us versus europe the usual spread of early late stage not a lot of movement there i mean there were six series c deals as opposed to one or two in february and march so it's possible we're seeing a resurgence in the later stage financings but nothing like what we saw a couple of years ago where everybody thought, okay, let's put $100 million into this company because we're going to go public at double the valuation in a year. And that kind of arbitrage play is not on anyone's mind anymore, although NASDAQ is looking better these days. The IPO market's kind of looking as if it'll wake up. And all of the bargain shopping that the public investors were doing when stocks were down kind of not all that much bargain shopping to be done. So they are going to look at new issues again, and we may have a good Halloween. We'll see. But as of now, May is a slight early bend in the curve up, and we'll see if that continues. Well, you know, it's always good to have good news. I always tell people while there is a lot to be said for a period of time where valuations decline as an investor, that's a good thing. I always root for good times because good times are more fun for almost everyone. Yeah, we had a situation where in our portfolio, one of our companies uh, converted a bunch of debt. And so we had come in as debt and we kind of like that sometimes when prices feel really high because to the extent the debt converts at a more reasonable price, then we do better. And that's exactly what happened for us. And I think the entrepreneur probably wishes that they had priced that that's that uh, money when it came in, but they didn't. And we so... asked him to, we suggested <laughs> we do it. So, yeah. And uh, I think, you know, when you see some of these later stage deals tick through the ticker, then you might be, you know, if you read between some of the lines, sometimes you might see the valuations are down from before or flat at best. And unless it's a seriously amazing AI deal, then you're not going to see the exuberance that you saw before. So a lot more rationality in the market, which everybody says is healthy, but I was reading today that it's usually a very short period of time where things are rational. They're either way depressed or a, real, a little silly that there's not much time spent in the middle, which it feels like we're kind of in the middle right now. So we'll see how long it lasts. Well, you know, we'll try to maintain our equanimity even when others don't. Yeah, all you can do is be careful about pricing and pick amazing companies. And that's a way to, that's a path to victory in venture. So that's what we attempt to do here. But before we dive into this month's companies, Chris, I really want to ask you about Twitter because people have been coming after Twitter so hard saying, this is our moment. This is when Elon is making everybody angry and they're looking for something else. And that network effect is vulnerable. So we're going to start something new. Even Jack Dorsey's on one called Blue Sky. And we're going to start something and everyone's going to come over in mass. And 
you know, we know how to create these network effect businesses and it's going to work this time because everybody hates Twitter. I just love to hear your comments on how that's going. So for most of this period, I have said the network effects are too strong to overcome. And unless Elon is just completely insane, there's no way that he can mess up Twitter enough to get people to switch. And that was true when people were talking about switching to Mastodon. That was true when people were talking about Post, which is a company from the founder of Waze. It's a very credible guy. And it was true when people were saying, oh my gosh, Jack Dorsey is starting Blue Sky. All of these to me fit into the category of wishful thinking BS. And I was very confident that none of these would put even vaguely a dent in Twitter. But what we have today is different. What we have is Facebook taking direct aim at Twitter and doing what they do best, which is copying something and then pushing the hell out of it. And the news I saw this morning is that Threads is at over 30 million signups and rising. And that is at least an order of magnitude bigger than any of these other previous Twitter clones has managed to achieve, and they've achieved it in 24 hours. So I don't think that it is clear that this effort is going to succeed. Not every Facebook clone effort actually does. But I think for the first time, there is a real chance that people will view this as an alternative to Twitter because it doesn't have the vulnerabilities these other things do. It's not like you have to set up your own server, which nobody in their right mind is going to do. It's not some sort of fancy new decentralized technology. It's not thinly capitalized. This is Mark Zuckerberg saying, I think you have a nice business there, Twitter. Why don't I take it? And let's not forget, Mark Zuckerberg came up with one of the greatest descriptions of Twitter of all time, way back in the day, which is, he said, Twitter is what happened if a clown car drove off the road on the way to the circus and ended up in a gold mine. Well, the other thing, don't forget, is that whereas Twitter really shat on all of its uh, advertiser relationships by polluting the um, the streams with just terrible, uh, just letting advertising show against really bad content. So it wasn't safe for advertisers. They ran. And now they don't trust Twitter. They're coming back slowly, but they really don't trust them. And they are pretty confident that Facebook won't let that happen. So not only do they already have the advertiser relationships, but they're pretty strong. And so there's a monetization ability there that Facebook has built in that no startup could ever, ever contemplate getting. So a huge advantage there. And you look at usage that's the trick you know like yeah. are, are people really going to go there every day the old toothbrush thing that you always talk about mm -hmm. reach for that toothbrush you know twice a day and brush their teeth with threads and that's all about people need to be posting there and it has to be the place where you can get interesting news that's what drove tiktok you know really interesting content from the community and if the community doesn't post there then it's i think there are going to be tools that you post simultaneously to all these things and so a lot of the material at least from the high volume tweeters is going to all be there but there's also that long tail that tweets that a lot of us are interested in and will the, all the vc content be there on day one so that hooks me i don't know i i doubt it i'm not going to go there because i really don't like handing over all my data to mark zuckerberg but um it's it's possible, you're right, it's possible that this could actually succeed.
Yeah. And I think that that's all you can ask. I don't think that success is likely going up against a strong network effect, but I think it actually has a chance. Whereas every previous effort to go against Twitter, I said, this has no chance. If I could short it, I would. And let's not also forget that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have no love lost for each other. In fact, they were planning on having their mixed martial arts fight until it was apparently canceled by Elon's mom. I don't remember exactly what the details are, but obviously they decided to move their fight to the realm of business instead of the octagon. I'm glad. I, I, I don't want either of those guys to have a concussion. Their, their brains are important to the world. You know, you may disagree with one or the other or both, but these are brilliant, brilliant entrepreneurs and they're assets for the world. And I, I don't want to see them injured. So I'm glad that that ended without a fight in the ring. Uh, okay, so let's talk about May and some of the deals we saw. As our listeners know, we score companies based on their blitz scalability and 100 points is perfect score and 80 points is a, an amazing score and anything above 80 is terrific and most companies don't make it to 80 so we'll look at you know this month was about 60 and we have three of them so that's a pretty typical percentage it's just not that many that really make the grade but when they do they're really interesting and we sort of dig deeper we we score them based on what we can kind of see on the web and then that's our first filter and then we look deeper and say yeah what else can we find out about these guys is our scoring really true maybe we made some assumptions about market size that are wrong or maybe we made some assumptions about product market fit they were a little under or or over the fact so it's always a good first step and really interesting discussion that we have but by far by no means is at the end of the discussion and this month it's two let's see two series a deals and a series c deal which we will start with called hippocratic ai chris what is this well hippocratic ai is tackling something that we've had as a theme in our discussions of ai which is a specialized ai based on proprietary data so it is a safety-focused medical large language model that's been trained on medical data and medical information as opposed to a general model like OpenAI's GPT-4. And their claim is that they can outscore GPT-4 on 105 out of 114 healthcare exams and certifications. Now, in some ways, this should not be that surprising because there is a hell of a lot of information about medical stuff that is not just found on the internet. I don't think you can just read a bunch of WebMD and say, okay, now I can take a medical exam. But what is also true is that the large foundational models like GPT-4 have proven surprisingly good at doing things that the specialized LLMs should have beaten them at, whether it's passing the bar or taking the SAT or what have you. So this seems like an area where the specialized LM is actually coming on top. And the reason it's exciting to us is, if you think about it, this is one of the biggest sectors of the economy. It is a place where we could all use uh, AI and amplification of human productivity. If you've been to a hospital or any doctor's office recently, you know that everyone is woefully understaffed. So to the extent that we can bring on AI to help with that, that's going to be huge. It's also the case that Hippocratic AI is not trying to say, oh, we're going to diagnose diseases. It's all about 
handling all the non-diagnosis stuff, you know, the calls, the follow-ups, the gathering information and so on and so forth, so that doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals can continue to focus on diagnosis and treatment. So I think it's very smart what they're doing. And we scored it pretty well. It's actually one that fits into the borderline category. So in terms of winner take most, we did not give it a 10 out of 10. We gave it a nine out of 10 because we think that having a medically focused LLM, having access to all the data that went into train it, that's something that provides some moat, but not as strong a moat as a classic network effect. There's a data learning effect, but no network effect per se. Viral growth or distribution gave it a pretty good score because they already had good relationships in the healthcare industry. They're viewing this as something that larger healthcare providers are going to use. It's not like a consumer facing service where, you know, individuals are going to come in and pay a fee. It's going to be something that the large providers use and they have good distribution into those areas. We gave it an eight out of 10. And I want to talk about that just, just for a second, because in medical, it's particularly important that you become trusted. And if you become the trusted software product that can do something everybody adopts because these are very risk averse people and they don't want to make mistakes in medicine and for good reason and i'm glad they're risk averse so the best if something is labeled as the best one that you can use and not get blamed for something and your insurance won't go up then word gets around and so the distribution gets a lot easier if you're the standard thing everybody uses I was going to say, there's even an entire term, which is standard of care. Literally, the industry seeks out standards wherever it can. And if you can become the standard, that's powerful. Exactly. In terms of product market fit, uh, the fact that they were able to pass those exams allowed us to mark them up a little higher than we typically would. We gave it an eight instead of a seven. So that's pretty good. And then, of course, market size, 10 out of 10. This is the biggest sector of the economy. Gross margin, 10 out of 10. Org scalability, off scalability, 10 out of 10. That's the whole point of AI to be able to multiply human productivity. Overall, that results in a 78. Now, while that's not 80, it's close enough that we would say, you know, let's take a closer look. The 78s and 79s, we take a closer look because all it takes is one minor adjustment to tip them over into the blitz scalable category. Yeah, and they're not going to be starving for cash. This was a $50 million seed round. Does that sound like a different era to you, Chris? It does, but what it sounds like to me is the AI era. And this is a deal from Andreessen and General Catalyst to premier firms. I know that both of them are placing a significant emphasis on AI, so it's pretty exciting. Indeed. it's AI is just driving all kinds of energy in Silicon Valley. It just feels really, really good. Jeremiah, our, our partner, is um, he's he's one of our limited partners, and he's running the Llama Lounge, and it's a wait list every time. I mean, he, he only has room for 250 people, and 400 people sign up almost immediately every time he has one, and it's a monthly thing. And Palo Alto is just ablaze with entrepreneurs who want to chase their AI dreams. It's exciting. Okay, Triumph is you know we've looked at a lot of things in and around the gaming space because gaming is uh it's just it's a huge form of media it's always underestimated people think movies and tv are important but gaming is bigger and they have figured out a way to make it so publishers can build in the ability for people to play against one another and the winner gets money 
And that is a lot like DraftKings and some of these sports betting games, which are big and important companies. So it makes you think, well, you know, this, this sort of way, if they can embed this and participate in the upside that they create, then that could be a pretty big business. So we scored it pretty well. This is a $10 million series A, which is just shows you the difference, right? A $50 million seed round. And this is a $10 million series A from General Catalyst. They should have called themselves triumph.ai. <laughs> That's right. They could have gotten 50. Uh, the scoring starts nine and nine for winner take most and viral growth. So why those numbers, Chris? Yeah. So the nine on winner take most is the following. So it absolutely makes sense that if you can establish yourself as a standard for playing this money, then there is an actual network effect. And basically it's, let's say somebody signs up for Triumph for one game. That means all of a sudden they can play for money on any other Triumph game. That's the network effect that's involved. But that is not nearly as strong as an Airbnb or Facebook level network effect. Uh, for example, it's it, the whole thing about Triumph is super easy to add into your games. It's just an SDK, a couple of lines of code, and then you compile it. Guess what? Somebody else could do the same thing, offer up their five lines of code. That makes it relatively easy for people to switch unless you've built up this massive footprint already. And so we wouldn't give it a 10 out of 10. We gave it a 9 out of 10, which is still very good. And then on terms of viral growth or distribution, what's great about this is any game developer who decides they're going to use Triumph is going to, again, be pushing the Triumph wherever they can, pushing the, the play for money version of their game, because that's the best form of monetization. Some of the case studies on the Triumph website showed that relative to advertising, using Triumph could generate 12 times as much revenue. I mean, that's pretty darn compelling. And so we think the game developers are going to push it heavily. Game developers are heavily networked. If there's a new way to monetize, they're going to find out about it. So that's why we gave it the nine and nine, which are very good scores. Product market fit, we said seven. It's really early. And you just don't know how much of this is happening. I haven't seen it in the wild yet, except in the long established games for money. So we'll see about that. Market size, huge 10 out of 10 gross margin 10 out of 10 as all payments companies are organ op scalability this is just an api so that should be easy there's going to be some burden on you know i thought i i thought i won this game and where's my money and, and i don't know who's going to be frontline for that but i have a feeling it's gonna be the game developer not these guys so they still get a 10 out of 10 for that and that's an 81 score yeah. So really a strong score, but remember, as I said at the beginning, just sort of the, the first pass score. And Chris, you did a little work on this one. What did you find out? Yeah, you know, one of our limited partners is an old friend who had worked in this space before. He had been at a company called Skills with a Z, which was very much in this space that ended up you know, raising money and going public via SPAC during the SPAC era. And what he told me was, you know, this is a tough business to make work because at the end of the day, it's the video games business. You've got to convince the best games to come onto your platform. It's not easy to do. You've got to have relationships with the game developers. It's not as easy as you guys think it is to get these folks on board. And it's really not much different from what we were doing at Skills. And that was not something that we could ultimately make sustainable. So you know, some a little bit of a cloud over it. Not really certain if this is something that makes sense. We may do a little further digging because, again, it's just one data point, but it is from an expert data point. Yeah, 
you know, I, I, I believe that, right? Anything around games that's, that's new and novel is just, it's a, it's a hard, it's not as hard to sell as, you know, VR games where you have to literally block out the world and wear something on your face. So that's, that's a much bigger ask, but this is in that same neighborhood where you're saying, okay, game developers, you are so locked into how you do things now. And here's this extra thing that we want you to do. And not everybody, you know, wants to play for money. You know, there's gamblers in the world. There's people who just kind of want to play. So it's not for everybody. Um, We'll see if it's for enough people that they really gain some traction. This is an A round, so we'll be watching. And it is uh, it is a, a something for General Catalyst, which led the A. By the way, you can find this company at triumpharcade.com. And the other note is they have some money from Heroic Ventures. And that's a firm that I have some good relationships with. So as we investigate this further, I expect to talk with them. They are a pure seed firm. So they probably saw this in the very earliest stages. And hopefully you can give me some good intel. Sure. And you have friends at GC, so that's another avenue. All right. So on to Utilize Core, which is an interesting business, not quite a blitzscaler again, you know, doesn't quite meet the grade, but anybody who's had work done on their house knows that you have your general contractor and they have a ton of subcontractors. And it's not just for, you know, residential construction, all kinds of project-based businesses have contractors that come in and you have to track how much work they do. And then you have to, they, they, they invoice you and you have to check it against the work they did and pay them. And it's a huge back office burden for people who really want to be out in the field making sure the work is done right and interfacing with their customers. So all of this back office stuff is an enormous nuisance for them and they'd love to unburden themselves. And that's what Utilize Core tried to do is, is, is take away some of that burden by automating all the interactions around the relationships with subcontractors. And it's a 16 and a half million dollar series A and our friends at First Mark let it, the company's in New York, so that makes sense. That's where First Mark is. And it was done at the very end of May, so almost a June deal. What do you think about this one, Chris? Well, this is an interesting one because when we think about it, I look at it and it is basically software for being able to manage a network of subcontractors. So it has the feeling when you have this network of being a marketplace, but it isn't because it's really managing this network that you bring in yourself. And it, they describe themselves as being based on neural networks, which feels a bit like an attempt to wedge some AI talk into what is otherwise a pretty traditional SaaS business. I mean, do you get that sense? I do, but you know, I've been thinking about this one and they could make a little pivot where you can, you know, if you don't have, if your subcontractor is not available, you could search for a different subcontractor and that is available. So if you have some visibility into availability in a certain area, then you could make a marketplace out of this and then it becomes a lot more interesting. Everybody's gonna to wanna to be the, like listed there uh, because these are the contractors doing the searching, not the homeowners. And that's the kind of relationship you wanna develop as a, as, a, as a tradesperson. So, you know, they could like adjust the product in that direction and they might make their way up from an eight to a nine in winner take most in our eyes. What do you think of that? Well, 
I'm still a little skeptical because speculating in a way that they could twist their product and then saying that that allows us to increase their score strikes me as still being on the speculative side. But oh yeah, you know, no, I wasn't suggesting we change it today. Oh, okay, I'm great, just saying great, that great. Should keep they an eye on them. Go yes. that direction, yes. then you know that could really make a bigger moat for them, and they could extract more value. But yeah, that's not what I, they're talking about. I think the other thing that's interesting about this one, you know, and this is available in public information, but it takes a little digging, is the fact that the chairman of the company, who is the father of the CEO, was a co-founder of Service Channel, which was a very successful company in the field of, of managing these kinds of service relationships. So I think that that background and having an executive chairman who's you know had a multi-billion uh, dollar plus outcome in the space before is part of the reason why they're backing the company. That would be my guess, at least. Probably is. And that's a really good reason. If you yeah. listen to my lecture about, you know, who gets funded, it's either have a ton of team or you have a ton of traction and anything in between is really hard to fund. And because that really experienced and very connected person is involved, makes the deal a lot more attractive to investors. Still, it's an eight out of 10. And then we give a nine out of 10 for viral growth or distribution. The argument there is that the uh, subcontractors are going to say to every contractor they work with, this is a great system that's really easy for, for Fred over there. And so, Josephine, you should use this one too. And it can spread that way. Yeah. And then, of course, when we go to things like market size, gross margin, scalability, gets top marks for these. I think we could argue over whether or not there might be some off-scalability side, but the fact is we're dealing with subcontractors. We're not dealing with a massive consumer scale thing, so I don't think you no. need that many customer service folks. That results in an overall score of 78, borderline, similar to Hippocratic, something we take a closer look at, maybe find out, is this executive chairman really involved on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, this is, I'm reminded of watching some stuff about George Lucas and Star Wars. And when they came up with the sequel trilogy, George Lucas sold to Disney in part because he said, like, I just got married. I don't want to be an absentee father. If I commit to a sequel trilogy, I'm spending 10 years on the road, on location. Forget it. I'm just going to take my $5 billion and go home. And you always wonder, is somebody who is that successful, somebody who's still going to be there on a daily basis, still have the stomach for the fight, if you will? And that's something we'd have to investigate. Indeed. And the other thing that you got to be careful of is family in deals. Mm, and true, let's say true. the CEO is underperforming and sets expectations too high and misses by a lot, does some poor hiring. There are things that can go wrong at the early stages of companies where you do need to look for different management. And is dad going to have the stomach for that? That's the question. That's that's complexity that no investor wants to deal with. And so definitely going to have some really interesting conversations with everybody involved in that one. But you, you, you can't really know until it happens. Yeah. They could say all day long, oh, you know, if, if, if Fred or whoever it is is not the right CEO for this business, then we'll all see it, we'll all know it, and we'll all make the change, and we're all grownups here, and that's going to be fine. And don't worry, Mr. Investor, we're, we're – we're all set. And when a push comes to shove, people don't agree and it can get messy. So well, I'll just put it this way, Scott, let's say your son or daughter was uh, the CEO of a company and you needed to remove them. 
how easy would that be at home? Well, that's the thing, right? You, you, it's easy to make the business decision, but then the repercussions of that are tough. So yeah. I, I, I think way ahead of that, I would resign from the board and separate myself from the company. <laughs> <laughs> which, would, which would be a problem for uh, the, the thesis for investing. But anyways, the, the point is, again, the, it's very easy when we have this beautiful model with a set of numbers to just look at a number and say that single number tells us everything. But this is another example of, hey, the number doesn't tell us everything. There's all this other stuff going on. The number is just the initial filter. Yeah, speaking of numbers that are are not telling us everything, we talk about those deal counts, and I would estimate that the, those deal counts understate the number of deals that are happening enormously because these are quiet deals you don't announce. You don't announce the inside round. You don't announce the, the little inside down round. You don't announce the little sort of bridge note that you wrote. You know, that it's just everything stays very quiet when you're not announcing something wonderful to the world. So all those numbers are taken with a grain of salt relative to one another in this era. I think they have signal, but they're a little noisy when you think of them in the overall context of what's going on. That said, I'm going to tease June a little bit because mm. we're doing this podcast in early June. June numbers do tick up significantly, not up to 100, but they're up. And next podcast, we'll tell you by, about how much they're up. Now that is a tease. It reminds me of seeing a, a thing on television when I was in college. This country whose government was just overthrown by a military coup. Tune in at 11 to find out. <laughs> All but right. None, rest assured, none of us were saying, was it the U.S.? Was it the U.S.? <laughs> I don't think so. Not yet. Uh, okay. So we've talked about Twitter. We've talked about some really interesting companies. We've talked about some trends in our business. Any other big topics that we missed that are germane to this podcast? I would just uh, issue a quick reminder to folks that these are the deals in which the, these are the months in which the deals were announced, not necessarily the months in which they were done. And so even though we are headed into what people call the summer doldrums for venture capital, so July and August, the fact is these deals are announced maybe sometimes months after they're done. So we may not see that same seasonality effect. We'll see. And until then, I'm Scott Johnson. And I'm Chris Yeh. And thank you for joining us for Blitz Scalable Venture Deals. We will see you next month.